Yeah, she'll teach you how to be artistically you. Not afraid to talk about what's taboo. So don't play small. Join the podcast with Nikki Collins. Autism Unmasked. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Autism Unmasked. My name's Nikki Collins. I'm the autism coach and author of Through Autistic Eyes. You can find out more about my coaching and my book on my website, theautismcoach.co.uk. And today's guest is Harris Eddie Hill, who is a non-binary entrepreneur who has a focus on helping people to recover from dysfunctional families and unaccepting parents. Harris has spent the majority of their life, adult life, being an entrepreneur, but has currently dipped into the murky world of a jobby job within the NHS and is currently coaching there and is going to be going in a different direction in a very near future. So welcome to the show, Harris. Thank you so much for joining me and for being here today and for offering up your expertise and valuable time. <laughs> of course, Nikki. Thanks so much for having me on. So I didn't actually ask you before. When were you diagnosed, Harris? Uh, well, it's still an ongoing thing. <laughs> okay. So I was 19 when uh, there was, a, I, I went to uni. Um, well, I tried it, not for very long. <laughs> and I dropped out. But one of my flatmates in the halls, um, she was saying to me, I really struggle with this learning thing. And she described it as said, you're describing dyslexia, go to the student union, get sorted. And then she came back home sometime later and went, look, all this free shit I got. (laughs) (laughs) And then I said to her, yeah, I really struggle with, you know, it's the first time I've lived away from home. And I've discovered all of these things socially that I can't do. And I've never had to do it before because other people have done it for me and I've not noticed. And she asked me more about that. She said, do you know about autism? And I was like, well, I mean, I've heard of it. So she got me a leaflet and I read it and I was like, oh, so there was a battle of about seven years trying to get diagnosed. And the last psychiatrist I got in front of, she said, you're very clearly autistic, but we've got limited funding and we reserve that for the people who are less functional than you or who struggle more than you do. And I was like, how do you know how much I struggle you've not asked me she said yeah but you're holding a conversation with me I was like the bar is low so I am in the process I'm I'm I've since discovered that I also have ADHD and you know I'm nearly 35 at the time we're recording this and uh you know it's been a very very long time that I've known that I'm neurodivergent I got a sort of sort of unofficial diagnosis of sensory processing disorder by an occupational therapist and that happened seven years ago so it's been a long journey of trying to cobble it together and get into this point and obviously now there's this right to choose thing available in the UK so uh, I'm waiting for an assessment finally for ADHD and hopefully autism as well. Are you going through Psychiatry UK? I think so they're the most kind of used and known about when using the right to choose. Well, I wish you luck with that, but out of all of the people that I've spoken to in 
well, probably all of the people that I've spoken to, you are one of the most who, people who are very comfortable with who they are and know who they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's no denying that uh, you have flavours of newer spice going on, Harris. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> spicy <For sure>. human. <laughs> so... Tell me a little bit about your business because I mean being a, a an entrepreneur when you're autistic f- fits so many helpful boxes on a personal level you can set your own hours you get to choose who you work with you get to choose so many aspects when you're confident in what you're doing sometimes you don't always start off like that you kind of start off doing this that and everything but you've got a lot of experience under your belt now so how have you kind of found that and the entrepreneur entrepreneurial journey mm. I mean I never I think because when I was younger I was associated being entrepreneurial or a business owner as being this like super functional capable person and growing up I was weird and proudly so in a way but it just felt like that whole world was inaccessible. And then I was 24. I was working for an engineering, a small engineering company, and their company culture was in the dark ages. I mean, I knew at that point I was queer. I, I had a I had a girlfriend at that point. I didn't know I was trans or non-binary yet. And even then, I mean, being perceived female and que- like, you know, I, I had no chance. Even then it was it was bad. And the way I got treated at that company was terrible. But the thing is, it was only the last of many bad experiences in employment. And for a long time, I just, I couldn't quite work out why I couldn't get on with it. I could deliver really good work, but it was like people didn't like me easily. And despite the fact that I was ticking the boxes of the things I was meant to do, for some reason, people were unhappy. And Such a familiar story, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, I was like, sod this. <laughs> so, yeah, I they they finally turned around to me and said, look, it's like this. We just don't want you here. You haven't done anything majorly wrong, but it, it, this is just not working for us. But you also haven't done anything that's like a fireable offence. We can't make you redundant because we need this job role. And it's such a general job role. Like, so but they broke the law and asked me to hand in my notice. Ooh. And during that time, I was interviewing for these other jobs and I thought, this is all shit. You know, none of this is what I want. It's all uninspiring. And I'm just going to end up with the same people who don't get me and who, for whatever reason, are going to treat me badly. And I'm not going to thrive like there's so much about this world that I just feel allergic to it's it's crap I hate it literally hate it and office politics you know listening to people sometimes I'd share something that I thought was useful information and it would not go down well because someone else hadn't thought of it when I was about 20 so I left uni I went and did a hairdressing apprenticeship didn't finish it because I didn't do my perming but the rest of it I'd done and I just thought, sod it, I'll just go and cut hair. You know, yeah. so I it was it was very much a, a needs must. And, and I refused to be miserable and employed. 
That makes absolute sense. And I must say, you have amazing hair. So it's Thanks. obviously a skill that you have carried on throughout the years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I ended up having a, a hair and then makeup. I added makeup, I think, within a year. Mm. Uh, I did art and sort of art, uh, fine art at um, A level and then went on to do an art foundation course at college so I was very creative and got the gist of you know I've worked in a lot of mediums and makeup felt just like an extension of that so I was just pretty much self-taught and I think in my first month of business I took 200 quid which you know with my overheads being super low I thought that's that's not bad and then I took a part-time job in the mornings, which I was only planning to be there for a maximum of a year. Mm -hmm. But the owner, I was just helping out in the mornings. It was just me and her. Uh, Unfortunately, her mum got um, diagnosed just as I was about to hand in my notice, got diagnosed with uh, brain cancer. Oh, no. And I was like, it was it was it was a shitter. So I was like, well, I can't I can't leave her now, especially with her mum being apparently so close to the end. Um, so I kept going with the business and it got to the point where some days I was starting at my office job at 830 in the morning and I'm not a morning person. It makes me very ill often. Like it just, it doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so starting 830 in the morning and then some pay, uh, clients I was seeing up until like 10 or 11 at night. Like I was working sometimes very long days and I, I was at the point where I didn't need that job and it wasn't paying very much. Hmm. but I wasn't in a position to so I think I waited a year and that this poor lady um, had lasted a lot longer than she was predicted to and I was on my knees at that point so I had to kind of break up with my boss yes having been there for over a year longer than planned and um, and her mum hadn't died yet so it was (laughs) it was was really tough Um, but yeah, I think within about, I don't know, I think at the three year mark, and I hadn't been doing much marketing, it grew very naturally mm. and word of mouth. And I didn't really put a huge amount of effort into it beyond the actual uh, client work. And yeah, I think by the time I got to about the three year mark, it had naturally grown and I'd sort of replaced my old full time salary. Brilliant. Which wasn't enormous, but again, it was, you know, it, it was such a gentle journey into the whole thing. And I was having fun and I was still sort of in my early 20s. So, And it's satisfying, isn't yeah. it? Knowing that yeah. you've created that and you're not lining the pockets of somebody else. And yeah, it's yeah, satisfying. Yeah. And I think from from a kind of, a, you know, autistic point of view, I felt so much better about myself because I was working with clients directly. It was just me and them. They told me what they needed. I said whether I could or couldn't provide it or how, or we discussed the how. Mm. They were happy. I was happy. It was such a simple formula. There was no egos involved or unnecessary politics. And, you know, all the people that I kept for years, we had very good communication and they appreciated that I was direct and literal. And uh, also that I had a good sense of humour. Yeah, I'm very good at listening. And that's what that's kind of the direction that my life has gone in anyway. But yeah, it ended up being 
really positive for everyone involved and uncomplicated and you know just very positive it was the first job that I was ever happy in and it's one that you crafted for yourself yeah exactly yeah as we were saying the other day when we had our pre-podcast conversation (laughs) we both agree and I know that a lot of people listening will be nodding but neurodivergent individuals, neurodifferent, neurospicy, however you want to call us, however you identify, are far more capable than people ever give us credit for. And we're very often underestimated. And mm. that is such a big mistake that people make. It really is. And it kind of used to really uh, rile me up. But now I've just shaken my head and think, you watch, <laughs> just watch. <laughs> yeah. And I think also there's like, um, you know, people have been taught certain formulas and then people like us come along and go, well, you don't need to fanny about with all of that. You could just do this. Like, that's super simple. And they're like, oh, but that's not the way it's done and it's never going to work. And they're saying all of this just because that's the way that they're taught to be. And I feel like I feel like in many areas of life, whatever marginalised community you're from, you're aware that there's a playbook that doesn't necessarily apply or you don't necessarily get to use it because it doesn't it's not written for you Mm -hmm. so I think that there's much more of a willingness to kind of do away with conformity or tradition or what how things are usually done in -hmm. favor of well this works for me and actually I'm not afraid to give it a go and sure enough it will work because there's no perfect way to do anything and and our methods are going to attract the right people in the first place so Exactly. And why follow what the masses are doing? Because you're going to get the same results as those who might as well do something a little bit different. Yeah. And if you are in a marginalized group, whatever that group is, you are automatically conditioned to play small. And Mm. people like you and I come along and say, hey, there's a great big world out here and it's open and available for you to step right into and to actually be the person you were meant to be. And that, my friend, is not to be played down, to shine, sparkle. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Do you know what? I actually wrote about that. The co-authored book that I produced was um, for LGBTQ plus entrepreneurs. Yes. Uh, I'll give you the link if you want it to put it in your captions. But anyway, the point was is that what I wrote was about the fact that as a marginalized entrepreneur, there's going to be huge amounts of your journey and your vision that's going to have to rely on your intuition and you're going with your gut. Mm -hmm. Because I hadn't ever seen the non-binary entrepreneur before. You know, I hadn't seen anyone like me doing what I was doing in the way that I was doing it. And, you know, I wasn't just some bog standard hairdresser. Not that there's anything wrong with that because, you know, we all need different things. Um, But, you know, I had a, I had a big vision and there was no one for me to look up to at that time to to think well this is possible mm. I just had to feel into it and think yes it, it feels right I I think it's going to be okay Awesome Sometimes you just have to go with the flow one of my kind of regular mantras is I trust the process as it unfolds because it, you just got to go with that gut instinct sometimes and it's amazing where it takes you. Mm. It's amazing yeah. it takes you. Definitely. So how did you get onto your primary focus being recovering from dysfunctional families, Harris? Well, I had, I had a, so the hair and makeup thing 
was how I began. And whilst I had that business, I also ended up doing professional house sitting. This is related. Uh, professional house sitting and then also some professional advocacy work around LGBTQ plus issues, but particularly gender identity. And then I got to a point where I was like, all of these things that I do are for other people. And not that there's anything wrong with that. And of course, as a business, you are doing something for somebody else. But I felt like it was reflecting like a part of me that was exhausting. Mm. And during all of this time, so, you know, being being self-employed and starting my hair and makeup business, what I didn't know was that it was going to give me the space to start recovering, to start living life on my own terms and it took a very long time I've been in and out of like trauma therapy regular therapy coaching you know you name it and been on a big uh, healing journey of my own uh, my first lot of trauma therapy was around uh, I won't go into detail but just as as a headline uh, was about an assault that I had suffered as a child and then you know from a, an adult man and then the, the experience had repeated with a couple more men throughout my like once in my teens and then again in my 20s so I did this um I had this amazing trauma therapy you know I'd had this extreme PTSD for 20 years I couldn't even read a newspaper headline I'd be locked in my car screaming crying like completely gone so I had this this healing and it took two hours and it was gone like 20 years of what I was living with was just disappeared wow and I was like, wow. And I then, a few some years later, I'd had a, had a couple of breakdowns in between, went back to my therapist, and then it turned out I had complex PTSD as a result of my family culture. Okay. And, and the many myriad things that have happened in my, you know, with, from within my family system. Mm. And it reached a point where, I had this, I had gone through these lots of different schools of thought, like attachment theory, recovering from codependency, two different types of trauma therapy, all sorts of different things. And I realized that that like this has only been a, a realization. I've helped people a lot with this, but I could never put a name to it. I think when you recover from a thing or you have grown up with a particular thing it feels normal it's almost impossible to kind of get a, a far enough away view of it to be able to conceptualize and to label it mm. and yeah so I've reached this point where I was like oh that's my that's been the overarching theme of everything that I've been through because even the fact that for example you know, it wasn't my parents' fault directly that I was assaulted when I was a child. But in our family culture, boundaries didn't exist. No wasn't really a no. Uh-huh. And we we were never given the idea that you know, your boundaries are sacred. Like, this is totally up to you. You have choice. You have agency. You know, and we were also pushed to do a lot of extracurricular activities and all kinds of things that taught me also that you're going to do as you're told like this is more important than how you feel about it and this is common for so many of us and and I guess particularly from our sort of generation and all that kind of thing so it impacted my life in such a big way like this family culture that I came from and 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 by the way I love my family to death they're hilarious they're great people Mm. but 
in all of my experience um, and all of the work that I've done on myself, it's to end things like generational trauma. Yeah. Huge amount of trauma in my family. Um, a huge amount of undiagnosed neurodivergent people, a huge amount of emotional immaturity. And I mean that in the very in the clinical sense. And all of these things culminated in, in, you know, I grew up being extremely anxious and depressed, feeling very unempowered and like I couldn't do anything that I needed to do. You know, I felt very stuck and, and didn't enjoy life and life had for a long time and in many different ways in my relate in my romantic relationships and my friendships, my health work all of these things was so badly impacted because I was brought up to believe that I couldn't be happy and I had to just do what I was told which turns you into a chronic people pleaser yeah I mean that's just the beginning of it that's just the beginning of it you know and also how you feel is so dictated by how other people treat you how much time and compliments and positive things other people have to say about you Mm -hmm. um you know, you don't feel safe the, the moment that someone's not in a good mood. It, it I think it affects everything. <clears throat> and I have to say that having recovered from this, for the most part, of course, there'll always be little things. And, and um, mm. you know, you can always be traumatised with something new. <laughs> that, um, you know, just because life happens and, and, and these are things. But, you know, I think it's the confidence to overcome it and to realise that that is possible. I, th- I think that's the beginning of it. And also, it, you know, I know people who I think you can be a people pleaser. But also the other side of the coin of that to me was that I couldn't rely on anyone. And I didn't I don't even know if I was particularly aware that I was doing that. Um, but yeah, I found it difficult to ask for help. I also just felt like I had these these sort of beliefs I would never say out loud because they felt so unkind. You know, I believed at that time I had dated mostly men, a couple of girlfriends thrown in, but and no non-binary people at that point. So my my uh, opinion generally of men was extremely negative. Um, but also I believed that that was your lot in life and you just had to find a way to accept it and, and make the most of it. There wasn't like this idea that you could li- be living a totally different life. Yeah, and that all again feeds in from your upbringing and not being taught the boundaries. Um, it, my upbringing was very strict, and you did what you was told. I'm an only child. You did what you was told, and that was just the way my parents didn't know any better. That's how they were brought up, and I find that a lot of autistic and neurospicy individuals can quite often be those cycle breakers and they do step away from these um uh generational patterns of trauma and if you've grown up with trauma as a parent you you need to heal that yourself i Mm. mean i've had trauma and my son's seen me overcoming my trauma so the fact that i've had trauma isn't well, it's not great. It's certainly shaped the person that I am and it's shaped the person that you are, both strong, independent characters. But he's also seen the journey and knows that healing is possible and that there are choices and you can make choices based on your needs rather mm. than what you're told is right or wrong or what you should 
or shouldn't do. And I think um, I think we can be, if we're not advocated for, or we're not educated about our neurodivergences, I think in a way we can be more subject or like vulnerable to social familial pressures. Hmm. But like you said, but more, possibly more more likely to question them and be like, well, this is bollocks. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think I think, you know, there's a lot of um, um, amazingness, but also a lot of vulnerability and probably a lot of trauma as well. So. Yeah, I um, really want to help people to overcome that, because there were, for me, there was a long time during my healing where the only thing that I was really focused on was this idea that I could have this conversation that I so desperately wanted to have with my parents or I could tell them how I really felt or you know xyz and it's not that I technically couldn't but just in the end I ended up giving what I needed to myself and now my relationship with with them is far more relaxed than it used to be and when things pop up that I used to find very difficult, I can make a joke out of it and genuinely mean it. Like I, mm. th- there isn't anything that's being bothered in me anymore. And yeah. the amount of freedom and it's allowed me to kind of overcome mental health issues and to head into the next chapter of my entrepreneurial journey and just my life in general. With much more headspace, it's not being taken up with trauma and managing that. That's what's a beautiful place to be. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think I think if I could go back to my teenage self and show them where I'm at at the moment, there might be a few bits where they're like, well, what? you know, for example, why are you living back back at home and you're so old? <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I also think that there'd be a huge. But I think generally, generally, it would be like, wow, you're such a bright, genuinely positive person. Like you're very empowered. You really believe that things are possible for you and it is and, and things you've made things happen. And, you know, I, I was I still think I was I was always a good fun character at that age. But I do think I was massive. I was so I didn't know what to do. And I was constantly, constantly felt uh, responsible for my family and under a huge amount of stress. And, you know, a few times was kind of considering or vaguely playing with the idea of uh, kicking the bucket yeah you know, so, yeah my mental health was was right in the toilet and for a long time so um you know I'd like to be able to help people to get to this point of kind of freedom and being able to have the life that you want to have yeah because it is possible and I think one of the if not the most powerful tool that any coach or therapist can have in their toolbox is lived experience and overcoming these certain obstacles and although the challenges might be different from person to person the similarities and being able to build that report and being able to empathize and actually understand rather than guessing it's like the neurotypical therapist working with the neurodivergent client it's just there's there's a mismatch there so yes it's fantastic. So what is next for Harris? What is next for you? Well, um, I'm working on my first solo book at the moment, and I'm just in the process of getting a proposal together. Um, 
my second co-authored book is uh, launching on the 1st of February. It's just called 28. And it's about those of us who grew up in the UK uh, going to school under the Section 28 law that prohibited acknowledging talking about uh, homosexuality at school. Mm-hmm. So that's that's going to be a, a good one, uh, which I'm really excited about. And I've just enrolled in counselling school. So I'm going to become a therapist. Wonderful. Well. You're going to make an amazing therapist. You really Thank will. you. And what was the first book that you co-wrote? The first book is called Thriving in Business, Strategies for the LGBTQ Plus Entrepreneur. Oh, lovely. I like that. Well, I'll link all of these uh, links into the show notes so that if anyone wants to, they can click through and uh, check you out. How can people get in touch with you? How can they contact you? Nice. Well, my uh, website is mxmooksharrishill.com and there's all of my information on there. I'm also on all of the social medias. I've got a LinkedIn, but I mostly ignore it. So don't try that one. (laughs) But otherwise, uh, I'm on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. Okay. There you go, people. Stalk away, but only if it's good stalking. We only like good stalking. (laughs) (laughs) As I say, I will pop that all into the show notes so that people have an easy way to click through and reach you. And it has been absolutely brilliant to have this conversation today. And thank you for your time. Likewise. Thanks so much, Nikki. I really enjoyed today. And for our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never have to miss an episode again. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast with Nikki Collins. Autism on Mac.